It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh, and I hope you're not sick of me because you're about to hear a conversation between me and one of the OGs of podcasting, designer Debbie Millman, host of Design Matters. We cover what confidence means to her, how to handle uncertainty, what has fueled her creativity, and more. I learned so much from this conversation. I hope you do, too. Today, we're going to be exploring stepping into the unknown. And to talk about it, I am joined by Debbie Millman, the host of one of our first podcasts ever, or one of the first podcasts ever. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Elise. Great to see you. It's great to see you. Um, if you haven't tuned in before, Debbie's podcast is called Design Matters with Debbie Millman. And I have been listening while I go on runs and um, really enjoy your conversations, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, to frame this talk, um, why don't we start by talking about how stepping into the unknown um, applies in your own life and in your own career? Well, I was really influenced um, several years ago. I interviewed the great writer, Danny Shapiro, and we were talking after the interview. She came into my office at the School of Visual Arts and saw that I had stacked on my desk um, three books that had just come out about confidence. I I really had felt at the time that confidence was my holy grail, that this is what I was looking for to find um, my whole life. Like if I could find the confidence to step into anything without fear, that that would be it. Like my life would be made. And she and I started talking about that. And she said, oh, I think confidence is really overrated. And I was like, what, what? <laughs> like, head explodes. And I pressed her for more information. And she said that she felt that confidence was overrated, that most people that just had oodles and oodles of confidence were kind of jerky. And that <laughs> what she thought was more important than confidence was actually courage. Hmm. And that courage to step into that unknown was was far more important to being able to reach any kind of goal at all. And so it set me on a path of, of research to really find out and define for myself what confidence actually meant. What does it mean to have what, what how do you how do you get confidence? You don't go to a supermarket and like pull confidence off a shelf. <laughs> And you can't just manifest it. You know, you can act as if you have confidence, but if you don't feel it inside, you know, you're just sort of left pretending. Yeah, your decisions don't follow, right? Right. It does. It's just not. A, it's not. There's no. There's no recipe. And so, what I ultimately determined that confidence was developed after the successful repetition of any endeavor. Hmm. So the more you do something successfully, the more likely you are to just expect that you'll continue to be able to do that. So, for example, you know, when we're born, we don't have confidence to eat, to walk, to even to go to the bathroom. Right. We just do it. We just do it. We don't. It takes us time to walk. We stumble. It takes us time to learn how to feed ourselves. Sometimes it takes us quite a long time to learn how to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm on our own. 
that is all something that we develop over time, over practicing and failing. We stumble, we poop our pants, we get food all over our faces, we miss our mouth. There's so many things that we have to learn how to do. Once we learn how to do those things, we then have, you know, eating confidence or bathroom confidence, or if we're able-bodied, we have walking confidence. And so that is when confidence is built. When After you take that first step into the unknown, and that's where that gigantic courage comes from, because we have no predictive ability to know, and we can't really ever feel super great about walking into that step because of our reptilian brain. Our reptilian brain is set up to protect us from that very thing, putting ourselves in any kind of uncertainty. The reptilian brain, the oldest part of the brain, is structured to keep us safe, to keep us predictable, to keep us out of harm's way in any way. And anytime it feels that insecurity or that uncertainty, you know, those alarm bells go off. And, you know, just experience walking across the street, nearly getting hit by a bicycle. What happens? You get that surge of adrenaline. You can't control that. Right. That is an involuntary response. Anytime we are faced with uncertainty, anytime we're faced with anything that has any kind of unpredictable outcome, it stirs up that reptilian brain. So living with that information, stepping into the unknown is always going to cause us to feel insecure. It's a matter of deciding that that has to be the first step we take to ultimately try it, experience it, see what that what happens, learn to be successful over the course of doing it over and over and over, which will then ultimately result in having some confidence after stepping into the unknown enough time so that it doesn't feel like the unknown anymore. Yeah, I appreciate the way that you unpacked this and broke it down because I've never really thought about this before, right? I've always just thought, you know, some people are more risk averse and some people like to step into change, but when we do step into change, you know, it tends to something that I think that we don't talk about that often is that change also requires loss, right? You're kind of not only having to be vulnerable and step into the unknown and be courageous, but also say goodbye to something that you had grown confident about. So then I want to follow up by asking you, what is the value then? What is the value of stepping into the unknown when it does require so much of us? The results are are just the myriad results of achievement, experimentation, education, learning, love, vulnerability, hope. I mean, there's so many things that come with that first step. And oftentimes we want really badly that first step to be something that doesn't give us any insecurity. But that that insecurity is just really a signal that it means something to us. And we don't know what the outcome is. And therefore, we are worried about it. And and worry is just, you know, a way of managing our, our emotions and our experiences that don't have a predictable outcome. Debbie, it strikes me that you are someone who starts a lot of things from scratch. You can kind of tick those off for us, for those who aren't familiar with you already. Is there a formula that you have found beyond what we've talked about already with um, courage and growing confident? Is there kind of a formula that you have learned for creativity or innovation? 
most of the things that I've created, most, not all, but most of them have come out of uh, almost a, a desperation hmm. to do something, but then also having been rejected by others when trying to do it either collaboratively or for someone else. And so I've had to do a lot of things on my own because I wasn't able to get the support or the acceptance of, of some of my others out there. So it's so, challenges that have helped lead to creativity and innovation. Yeah, for I mean, I can really point to so many of the things that I've tried to make on my own as a response to ways in which I felt unfulfilled in other areas of my life. So Design Matters was really born out of, I, I often call it like it was a Hail Mary in my life at the time. I I had spent my entire 20s, really, I call my 20s the decade of experiments and failure. And, and it was just sort of one rejection after another. Then when I got into my 30s, I finally, finally, finally ended up sort of falling into a job that I, I ended up doing well in and then achieving at I want to say like 35, 36, 37, my, my first success of my life. And because it was something that was so unknown to me and I hadn't experienced before, I did what I think a lot of people do was just sort of abandon everything else and focused all my time and energy doing this one thing that I felt really successful at. And that was branding. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did that really happily, very committedly for about eight years, almost nine years. And then started to feel like my creative spirit, all the things that I had done prior to being successful at anything, writing, drawing, illustrating, making art, any of the crafts that I was doing, all of these things that I had done at the time to sort of soothe my spirit from the rejection. I had left by the wayside and realized how important they were to me. And at the time, I was offered this opportunity to host a radio show on a then-fledgling internet radio network called Voice America and thought, well, what do I have to lose? Here I get to make something that really isn't about market share, return on investment, shelf presence. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a decidedly non-professional endeavor. And so I, I started doing this thing which was really to help me feel like a creative individual again. And then it turned into something that I, I never, ever expected. 16 years later, I'd still be doing. So, you know, you never know where things are going to take you. And sometimes the very things, you know, it's sort of, sort of edible in a way, you know, you sort of try to avoid something by doing something else. And then you end up doing the thing that you were avoiding. And for me, it was really a Hail Mary to try to figure out how to, be a creative person again. I think any kind of creative endeavor is a really circuitous one. Hmm. There is no recipe. There's no path. You know, people talk about process all the time. What is your process for doing this? My process is a mess. <laughs> it's, you know, there is no way to be able to codify creativity. Okay. And all you need to do is start. All you need to do is commit yourself to the process of the unknown because 
there is no way to predict when something is going to be good, when something's going to be terrible, when something's going to be great. The very things that I think when I'm starting them that are, are this is going to be amazing, end up being utter failures. And the failures are the things that I experiment with or struggle with or fight with are the things that ultimately I think bring me the, the greatest satisfaction when they're resolved. But for those of us who are listening and really do want to be more like you and be more creative and more courageous, are there any are there any tests that you give yourself or questions that you ask yourself to decide whether something is worthwhile? Because I'm listening to you talk and it seems like because there is value in trying so many different things that you could just throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks. But is there a way to be more directed than that? Is there practical advice that you could give those of us uh, in the audience that might be helpful as we try and navigate resets? At least that's a great question. For many, many, many years and decades, really, I said yes to pretty much everything, Mm -hmm. mostly because I thought that each opportunity that was presented to me would be the last time anything was ever presented to me. You know, I had, this I had that attitude too in my own tremendous career. insecurity mm-hmm. about feeling that everything could just disappear at any moment. And that, that I think comes from, you know, early childhood and, and just your, my upbringing. And I think that a lot of people experience yeah. that. So even though I wasn't really excited about the first book opportunity that I had, I took it anyway because I thought this might be my only book that I ever write. Yeah. I don't care that it has there, there. It was a publisher that came to me to write a specific book about a specific topic, and it was how to think like a great graphic designer. My first book at the time, I thought this is like the worst title of any book in the history of all books because there is no way to think. Um, and ultimately, I tried to spin it and make it my own, and said yes, but. And then try to reframe the title by interviewing lots and lots and lots of designers to show the myriad ways that people think. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I remember thinking, you know, this could be it. This could be my only book. I have to say yes. And as I've gotten a little bit older, mostly because I worry about time running out, I think a little bit more carefully about, well, what do I want to spend my time on? And there are so many things that I still want to do on my own that are self-generated that I have to now ask myself, well, if not now, when? You know, how much more time do I want to think about doing something in the future as opposed to doing what I really maybe am most afraid of doing right now? And so I do think about that a lot. If not now, if not now, when? That's a big question for me. If not now, when? Another question that I, I find myself sort of, it's its more um, a signal to myself than, than anything. And this is something I've said before. So for anybody that's listening that knows me, they'll recognize this statement, which is busy is a decision. And yes. so sometimes when I am thinking about doing something, I'm like, oh, I'm too busy to do that. Alarm bells. Because what that is telling me is that I'm not making it a priority. And it isn't a priority. And so I have to really think hard about what I'm telling myself. You know, we choose to do the things that we do. If I'm too busy, why am I too busy? Am I spending too much time watching the great British baking show? Am I spending too much time, you know, doing any number of things that I might be doing to avoid doing something that maybe I either don't really want to do or I'm afraid to do? 
And so that sort of gives me an opportunity to recalibrate and challenge myself. What am I saying when I'm really saying this? And, and that helps me focus. As we're talking about this, it occurs to me, or I'm reminded by our conversation, the first of these reset conversations on LinkedIn Live we had was with another TED host, Adam Grant, who's a big oh. fan of yours. And you mentioned that the pandemic is a great time for reflection and for taking stock, but probably not a great time for hard pivots because our context is so unknown and this is such a tumultuous period. And so if you do make a hard pivot, you might really regret it and then not be able to unwind that. Yeah. Well, yeah. My therapist warned me about that. Too. She's like, this <laughs> is not the making a permanent life decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Okay. So I guess you're you're already answering the question there because I was curious what you thought about this idea that maybe this is not the time for hard pivots. Uh, we should consider taking big, greater risks or making changes. But you know, how would you advise us in this time in which we're both we are saying two things at once, both to be courageous and to try new things and to challenge ourselves uh, to in order to grow confident, but also. It's a weird time to be doing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't remember where I saw it. I think it was Twitter. Uh, but somebody said, you know, a global pandemic isn't the time to be thinking about your productivity. <laughs> and, and I think that that's, you know, we have to have some self-care and, and some patience through this. Um, I'm I'm concerned because I have found that while for most of my life I've been this really highly extroverted overachiever, yeah. I become a bit of a hermit and I've suddenly realized how much I like being a hermit. And I'm a little worried that, you know, I might end up spending the rest of my life in my house. Yeah, it's to a part of you that yeah. was undiscovered before. Yeah. So so I think it's an opportunity to try things on. Okay. And and I'm welcoming that, but I will say based on my own advice that I've gotten in thinking about making hard pivots, that this is not the time to make decisions for the rest of your life. I think that once we can all sort of come back safely into the world and readjust and recalibrate our hopes and our dreams and our, our energies, that that's when you start sort of dipping your toe into that pivot. Got it. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left, and so uh, we're opening it up to questions from our audience. Why don't I just start with this one? Is it ever too late to make a career change? Well, you're talking to a woman who's looking dead straight into her 60th birthday in a few months. And I think that there's never a too late to making changes. I didn't really start making the most profound changes of my life until I was in my 50s. I came wow. out at 50. I uh, turned down a CEO job at 50 to just sort of be able to no, 55 or 56 yeah. um, to, to really begin to live more in my own self-generated work. I didn't start my graduate program until I was 50. I mean, there's so many things that I'm still hoping to do. And here's where I'm going to quote another, um, another quote that I have used in the last couple of years since I first heard it as a life mantra. And that was when I interviewed David Lee Roth, the uh, former lead singer of Van Halen. Yeah. 
And um, I asked him what it felt like in the 80s, 1984, to be the most popular rock band on the planet and to be the lead singer of that most popular band on the planet. You know, he was like the most famous person in the world for a few Mm -hmm. minutes. And he said, you have to be really, 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 really careful when you get to the tippy, tippy top of the mountain, when there's no other mountaintops to see, because you're usually cold, you're often alone, and there's only one direction. And it occurred to me that we have to pace our peaks. We have to pace our peaks because the last thing we want to do is hit the top of the mountain at 20 or at 30 or at 40 because, you know, our longevity could be into the 90s. What do you want to do? Your best work when you're 30? No, you want to just take those slow steps up the the mountain. I've decided I don't want to peak until the day before I die. So hopefully that's in my 90s. And so I'll still be challenging myself and being scared about challenging myself and taking that next step into doing something new that takes me into that place, you know, at 90, 91, 92, you know. That's lovely. What a lovely sentiment. Um, And from David Lee Roth. I know. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? That's so philosophical. Um, Here's a more practical question from one of our viewers. I'm worried about boxing myself into one career or one industry. Do you have tips on how to make sure my career evolves with me? One thing that I would highly recommend that everybody do is find something that you can make on your own that really interests you. There's nothing that can substitute for self-generated work. Mm-hmm. It helps build a discourse with uh, an audience that's different from your corporate discourse. It gives you an opportunity to experiment and to push the boundaries of the box that you might be in, in that sort of nine to five type job. It really allows for broadening your horizons in a way that you can, I don't want to use the word control because there really is no control, but that you can navigate, that you can captain. And and I think that all of my best work has come out of self-generated work that I helped, that was helped by my, my corporate work, but not driven by it. It was supported by it but not driven by it. So I took money that I was making for my corporate work and invested it into my self-generated work. I used to pay to do Design Matters. In the first four years, I was paying Voice America to produce my show. But I was making decent money at, at my corporate job and felt that, you know, this is an investment for me. And so I was doing that for quite a long time before there was any kind of financial um, reward to it. But it really helped me develop my voice. And that was an investment that I felt was necessary. And so oftentimes our corporate jobs are the jobs that we need to survive. We need to support our families. We need to pay our mortgages. But they can also take a little tiny bit of that, if possible, and put it to your own self-generated work that you own, that you can do whatever you want with. It strikes me as we talk about, um, I hear you saying things like self, right, and self-generated, and this is the most me, that before we can make these decisions, uh, take these leaps and be courageous, we have to be able to listen to ourselves and really 
understand our most authentic voices. We only have a little bit of time left, but but I do want to throw in a follow-up here up from, from myself and not the audience, which is how do we get most in touch with kind of where our souls are at, you know, to, to best understand, you know, where to apply our energies, where to be creative, because you know, it's that you have to know yourself first. Yeah, but, you know, there's no manual for this, even though there are many, many books about finding your creative spirit and all that. All of that is wonderful, but you need to be able to discover it in yourself. It's sort of like Dorothy, you know, there's no place like home. She knew that all along. She had the shoes, all that. I, I think that this is where a life coach, a work coach, a business coach, a therapist, a counselor, this is where engaging in the practice of self-reflection mm. is also critical. It's another place to invest in, in your well-being because you need to really be able to listen to yourself. And sometimes having somebody ask you to do that or ask you those questions that allow you to find that inner voice is what makes all the difference in your life. It has for me. That's lovely. I think we have time for probably one more question. Uh, this is another practical one. How do I face my fears and move forward with courage when it comes to making a career change? So it is scary. We talked about this. It, it requires yeah, there's There's no, if believe me, if there was an easy answer, if there was <laughs> a path that I could point to for people to start on that was just the, the holy grail, um, I would do it. It's going to be painful. It's going to be something that scares you. But what I can say about that is that all of our emotions, heartbreak, grief, happiness, joy, all of these things are metabolized. We metabolize all of our emotions really quickly. I remember talking to one of my students one year. I asked, what would happen if you tried to do this and you failed? What would happen? What's the worst that could happen? He said, I would die of heartbreak. Like, no. You won't die of heartbreak. You won't. You will metabolize that heartbreak. It might take some time, but you'll go and find something else and you'll learn. The only thing that we can't metabolize, Elise, mm. is regret because there's no closure. There's no closure. You can't say, okay, this happened and now I have to get over it. No, because it's a future that you're always considering. You can't get over regret, but you can get over heartbreak. And you can get over grief. And so my advice is to take the chance, take the step into that, take that courageous first step into the unknown. The worst that you could that could happen is that you fail and metabolize your feelings of failure and try something else. It's so lovely and so wise. I tell my children, your emotions are just visitors. Yeah. So that they can help metabolize. Yeah. And if anybody doesn't believe me, think back to the last promotion that you ever got. How, how satisfied were you with that? Yeah. Were you still looking for the next one six months later? Exactly. Our success too. Yeah. Yeah. Debbie Millman, this was, I learned so much and you probably saw me, I was jotting down little notes. The whole time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, for those of you who haven't listened to Design Matters, that's the experience of listening to her podcast as well. There's going to be lots of notes and things that you're going to want to take away from it. So uh, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much, Debbie. Please. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton-Brown and our mixer is Christopher Fazy bogan We record the talks at TED 
TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com.